You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow a side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews. So let's get started. Hey, hey guys, welcome back to the show. It's Nikayla here, and I just want to start off today's episode by saying a huge thank you. Thank you, guys. Many of you reached out to me after my last episode where I shared that I've pulled back a bit and I'm just taking in this moment these next few weeks before my forthcoming wedding. And you guys reached out to me just to send love, to let me know that it's okay, that you understand that I should be enjoying this moment and taking the time to just appreciate and soak it in. And I really, really appreciate y'all for that. You didn't have to do that. I even had a Side Hustle Pro Facebook community member jump in and start moderating without me even asking. So huge shout out to Shelia for stepping in and stepping up like that. And best believe as soon as I get a moment, I will be hiring a Side Hustle Pro social media assistant to support me officially in that aspect moving forward. Now, I know you've heard me talk about this intern and my assistant and what I need before, but it's taken me a bit longer to secure that person because I really want to make sure I can process the information and spend time on the interview process. This is not something I want to rush. This is something I take seriously, not lightly. And that's because I know that hiring the right team is critical for business growth. We've heard it from numerous guests, like hiring is so critical. So I'm going to take my time on it. Speaking of hiring, if you are looking to build the right team, head over to ZipRecruiter.com. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. And then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it actually finds them. Over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter gets a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free 99. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash hustle. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash hustle. And one more time, y'all, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash hustle. All right, now let's get into it. Today in the guest chair, we have Gwen Jameer. Gwen is the CEO and founder of Naturalicious. What really stood out to me about Gwen is that she's already cemented her place in history as the first African-American woman to hold a patent for a natural hair care product. I actually found out about Gwen through a friend who told me all about this amazing woman who had a patent for a natural hair care product, and I knew I had to have her in the guest chair. Not only is Gwen a respected authority in the hair care industry, but she was named one of the 100 most influential African-Americans in the U.S. as a 2016 Route 100 Award honoree. She's also the winner of the Black Enterprise Elevator Pitch Competition and has been featured everywhere from Fast Company in Essence to Entrepreneur and The Washington Post. Let's hear from Gwen. 
Hello, Gwen. Welcome to the Side Hustle Pro guest chair. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to have you here. So for those who don't know as much about you, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into entrepreneurship? So I've always known that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've tried a few different things and they were moderately successful, but nothing to the extent where it was an actual full-fledged business. There are more or less side hustles that allowed me to kind of have some creative control of my life as opposed to, you know, working for quote unquote, the man and having my boss or bosses at any particular time dictate what I did with my time or how much money I was going to make and that sort of thing. So I've always known that I was going to be an entrepreneur. I just did not know how I was going to manifest. As far as what I currently do with Naturalicious and founding that company, that was probably the least intentional business thing that I've ever done. It was purely organic. I was pregnant with my son who is now six years old. And I saw a movie called Good Hair by Chris Rock. And in this movie, which I'm sure plenty of the listeners have watched in this movie, he takes a can of soda and he submerges it into a a big tub of hair relaxer and the can disintegrates within seconds. And it, you know, I'm pregnant and I'm emotional already. So seeing that just freaked me out to like the 10th power. And I was, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is doing this to, to this can. What's it going to do to my son who's in my belly? My kid's going to disintegrate like this can. Like I was all over the place with it. And in that moment, I decided that I wasn't going to relax my hair anymore. Problem was that I had been doing so since I was in the third grade. So I really had no clue what to do. I'm like 26 at this point. So I had no clue what to do with my hair in this natural state. And so it just kind of evolved into me looking for the right sort of products, the right mix of things that one worked extremely well, two were truly all natural because as a lot of us know, there's things that say natural, but they actually aren't natural. Oh, yes. And then, <laughs> and then three, finding something that didn't consume my life because by now I'm a mother, I'm a professional woman. At that time I had a very high powered job. I was the global digital communications director for Ford Motor Company. So I had this extra demanding job. I was a wife at the time. I was suddenly becoming a new mother. And this, the thought of having to spend hours on my hair just wasn't something that I was able to do. And so that's kind of how the business came about was me looking for something that fit all three of those criteria and not being able to find anything. So you're pregnant. I know you don't have a lot of time on your hands. When did you actually start building out the business? So I started building out Naturalicious uh, probably right when the, the day that I found saw that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I remember initially it was just me trying to figure out something for myself. It was never intended to become a business. It was just, hey, I need something for me. I'm just going to have to DIY this thing. I have no chemistry background other than 11th grade. And I did get an A, but other than that, I'm not a chemist. (laughs) And that's really what it was. It just kind of evolved into a business when friends would ask me, what are you using on on your hair? Your hair looks so good. It smells so great. What are you doing? I would give it to them. And then next thing I would know, their coworkers and their friends of friends of friends were asking where they got it and could they buy it. And so that's how it turned into a business because I was like, oh, I guess I've got to put up a website because people want to buy this stuff. But to be honest, when I was working for myself, Naturalicious actually started out an online beauty supply store. So I remember my son was just born. He was in a stroller and I remember walking down the street with him in the stroller and I'm on the phone with my best friend. 
And I was like, you know what? It'll be really great if I could just go to a store that had all natural hair care products and they were truly natural. Also, if they had been vetted by the people who work there, because, you know, a lot of times you're at the beauty supply store and you're just looking at the rows and rows of products and you're like, I don't know what to get. Some of these places, they don't know what you should get. They just want you to buy it, you know? (laughs) And I was like, what if I could go somewhere and everybody who worked there had knowledge of the product? Like you had to have product knowledge of individual brands to work there. And they were truly all natural. So that when you came into the store, you already knew that they had been vetted for ingredients and all these different ideas. And so I literally turned the stroller around and I was like, I'm going to go do that right now. And she's like, what? And I'm like, I'm going to go do it right now. So I go home and I put up a website and all that. And it became an online beauty supply store. And I found a lot of different brands that naturals were into. And I vetted for all that stuff. And it sounded like a great idea. And it was a great idea. It did actually pretty well. But that was the side hustle part of Naturalicious. So it was a side hustle when I was doing that. But then again, I had my own little like concoction that I was using on my hair. And I found that more people were actually asking for that. And I wasn't even promoting that. This is all word of mouth. So more people were asking for that than they were asking for the products that I was actually trying to sell. (laughs) So I was like, oh, you know, I must have something here. And so time went on. I ended up losing my job. I was laid off when the company went through a restructuring and I was going through a divorce at the same time. So I got laid off 30 days before my divorce was final. So it was a really bad time to be laid off, not have any money, suddenly be a single mother. And at that point, the day I walked out of my job, which was May 4th of 2013, that was the day that I decided that I was going to make Naturalicious a legit full-fledged business because I had told myself I was done working for other people. I don't enjoy it. And I knew that I wanted to work for myself. So I had $32 in the bank and I was just like, I'm just going to make this happen. And so that was four years ago. When you had started the beauty supply store, like you said, you went home, you threw up a website. Did you know how to do all this stuff before? Like, it seems really straightforward. Like you just went home and you put up one business that didn't work out. So you pivoted to the other business. Like, how are you doing this and where were you getting inventory? Well, I would get inventory from the brands. So one of the brands that we carried was Curls, which is in Target now. We also carry Jane Carter. We and my, when I say we, it was me. And <laughs> our office was my little home office. So that was where all the inventory was kept. So in my home office, there's a pretty large shelving area. And so I turned that into the inventory spot. And so I would sit in my office every day and, you know, people would order Jane Carter solution products or they would order curls. They would order Commit Biologics or we had about 14 different brands that I carried on the store website. And it even got to the point where I went out and I found a retail location in the city. I live in Michigan and I'm not too far from Detroit. So I found a company who was looking to share their space and it was a candle company. And so basically we were sharing space. This is all while I still have my job. So we're sharing space within the candle shop. And the plan was I was going to work at my job and she was going to run the store. And then when I had time, which was not very much, I would come in and I would then take over the store and she could kind of get a break. But what started happening was that people would call me and say, hey, I'm at your store and I'm looking for X, Y, and Z product, but the store is closed. What time are you guys opening? And it would be like two o'clock on a Wednesday. 
And I'm like, where is she? <laughs> you know? oh my God. It was horrible. And I'm like, girl, you're messing up my money. Like, I can't have this. You know? <laughs> so it was just a mess. And so I realized in that moment that I don't like retail. Not I, I like retail sales. I don't like re, like me having to be fixed on a location. So for me to have to be at a physical location for eight hours a day or whatever is not something that vibes with my spirit. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this with you anymore. <laughs> so I closed down the side hustle slash physical retail location that was sharing space with her. And I just completely took it back online. And so, you know, I had relationships with the different brands and it was just a matter of me literally going on their website and, you know, finding the contact us form telling them that, hey, this is my website. My name is Gwen. I own this beauty supply store. It's called Naturalicious. And here's my resale license. So I would send them a copy of that so they would know I was legit. And then I asked them for their wholesale pricing. And it was just that simple. I always get people asking me, well, how did you know to do this? How, you know, it was like, I don't have any more connections than you do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a matter of me asking. I think a lot of times we make we never things- even try. Yeah, we never try and we make things bigger, but in our minds, they're bigger and more complicated than it really is. You know, I always hear Sarah Blakely, who is like my mentor in my head. She's the woman who started Spanx yes. and she's the youngest woman, youngest self-made billionaire in America. And I just adore her. I think she's amazing. And she always talks about getting into Neiman Marcus. And people are always asking her, how'd you get into Neiman Marcus? How'd you, you know, who'd you know? She's like, I literally called them. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> like, I didn't know anybody. I picked up the phone. Yeah. That's it. I didn't wait around to find the right person at a networking event. I just called them and told them, this is what I have. Can I present it to you? And they said, yes, I had a meeting and here we go. You know? Exactly. So yeah, that's, that's really what happened with me. Yeah. And I love the fact that you say that because a lot of times the information is out there. Just today, like I was reaching out to some new sponsors for the podcast. I went on one website and I was like, oh, thank you. Like everyone's email is right here under their name. Like it's amazing. If you just look and ask, stuff is out there. It's not as hard as it used to be. Absolutely. So let's get into those other steps now, because your divorce was finalized and you were laid off and you said you had what, $32 in the bank. Like what did you do from there to take Naturalicious from idea to business? Yeah. So I started to rely on my skill set. So like I said, I previously was the global digital communications director at Ford. So my professional background is in technically communications, but also marketing in the digital space. And so I have to get some context here. When I started at Ford, the company was in the midst of the auto industry's downturn and Ford had not taken the buyout like Chrysler and GM. And the general consensus amongst the public was that all three of the major automakers in the country had taken this buyout. And so Ford was really trying to separate themselves from Chrysler and from GM so that people would know like, hey, we're better. You know, we're the better company. We made our own way, the American dream, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And so I was recruited out of graduate school to work at Ford. I'm originally from Ohio. So I was moved to Michigan, worked at Ford and 
at the time, it wasn't like it is now. Companies were not on Facebook using social media to connect with consumers. That's, that was unheard of at the time. And again, this was 2009. So that was not even 10 years ago, right? And so my team, we had the charge of using social media, creating a Facebook page, finding fans to drive to our page and then connecting with them in a personal way. So taking this huge behemoth of a brand and making it much more personal for the consumer so that they felt like they were talking to us one-on-one. And so we utilized Twitter, we utilized Facebook, um, all these you know, seemingly free tools, although obviously it's forward, we have a huge budget that we can work with, right? So when I got laid off for my job, I took that same idea, you know, that, okay, I have all this training now and all this background in how to market a brand on a shoestring budget, despite the fact that we had a huge budget. So me having $32 didn't really sway me because I knew how to market without having access to an enormous budget by utilizing social media in the right way. Right. So that was one thing that I did. So I was very lucky to have had my previous position because it totally prepared me for the the role I was finding myself in at this point with $32 and no money to do anything with. But what I would do, I would grassroots it the whole time. I would find people on Instagram who had more followers than me. And at that time, that was almost everybody. And I would find people who had a, who tried a product similar to mine and kind of sort of liked it. And I would email them and I'd say, hey, you know, if you like this product, you're going to love mine. Let me send it to you. And if you like it, just do me a favor and, and make a post about it. So that's how we got known in the beginning was because people were utilizing something that was better than what they thought that was the general status quo. And so it was just finding ways to be creative in the marketing space without having access to a budget. I mean, you get real creative when you don't have any money, you know? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and once I would make a sale or a few sales, I would then go to the farmer's market here in Detroit. I would go there. It's called Eastern Market. I would sell what I had. And then I would take the money that I had made and I would then funnel that back into buying more inventory, more bottles, more raw materials, more caps, that sort of thing. I would take whatever was left and pay whatever bill I could out of it. And then after that, I would just put the rest back into the business. So there was no excess money. It was like it either went into the business or it went to, you know, feed my son and pay our bills so that we could stay afloat. So prior to working at Ford, I was an editor for a publishing company. So I had, you know, some some different skill sets. And so I would go on to websites like at the time it was called Elance, but now it's called Upwork. I would go there and it was like an, a freelancer's a place to find freelancers to do for different jobs. And I would bid on jobs just to kind of help me stay afloat without me having to go find a job. Because finding a job, one, for me, it's just, it's just too much. You know, it's just too, <laughs> it's just too much. Of a, it's too, it's, finding a job is a it's job a commitment. in itself. It's a commitment. It is. And it's like, I don't have time for this. I don't want to do this. My heart's not in it. And I think that my risk tolerance is a bit higher than a lot of people's. But I was willing to say you know what? <laughs> my car note's not going to get paid today, but I work for myself and I love it. I love waking up. I don't dread going to work and being miserable. And that's kind of how I felt. And I knew that one day it would get to a point where I would love to wake up and my car note was going to get paid. And so I just knew that I had to just stick through it. But then also on the side, creating kind of like another side hustle for myself in the meantime, so that I could still have this entrepreneurial dream and this life and all that stuff, which was my main thing. But on the side, having 
that extra income from editing or from marketing for other people. And I would do that kind of like in the meantime. Using your own sales, your own money to fund your business and not having to have your hand outstretched asking others is really admirable. How did you do it? Um, well, it was just one, <laughs> to be honest, I was going through my divorce and once it was finalized, it was very important to me that my son, who was only two at the time, didn't see us fail. Like that was always in the back of my mind. I didn't want his lifestyle to change. It was already bad enough that his dad wasn't in the house anymore. I didn't want us to have to move home with grandma. I didn't want us to have to be homeless. He went to a really nice daycare at the time he was two. I wanted him to continue to be able to go to that daycare. Now I couldn't afford for him to go seven days a week or I'm sorry, five days a week like he was before, but at least to still see his friends like one or two times a week, like all that stuff was in the back of my mind. Like I want his life to feel unchanged for the most part. Like divorce is already challenging enough for kids, let alone having to uproot yourself. And Mm -hmm. so That was really my drive. Like we live in the suburbs and it's a pretty nice area and it costs to live in that area, you know? And I remember when I was getting divorced, my ex-husband at the time was, he told me, he was like, you aren't going to be able to afford that house. You are going to need me and you can't make it on your own. Oh no. And that was, (laughs) yeah, right. Hello? I'm like, oh no, you messed up with the wrong one. You don't know. But that was very, um, very, very, very important to me. Not just because I didn't want, you know, my son's life to be interrupted, but also because like just the psychological thought of it. Because one day he's going to get old enough where he he realizes that his mom and his dad are divorced. You know, so this is what I'm thinking. And there's going to, he's going to want to know what happened. I'm going to tell him like, this is what happened. But I want him to understand that, look, like times got really hard for us. And I was a single mother. It was just me and you. His dad moved back to Ohio where we were originally from. And I made it happen. I made it work. And, you know, we're still living and we're still thriving and we're still doing our thing. And I want him to see that because I know that I'm the first woman he'll ever love. And so I want him to choose women who can stand on their own. You know what I mean? Who are strong women as he gets older. And um, that's kind of always what I was thinking about. I just want my son to be proud of me. I just want my son to be proud of me. And so not too long ago, I actually won an award. It's called the NABO. NABO is the National Association for Women Business Owners. And I won the up and coming award. And he was at the ceremony, my son, who's now six, and I won it. He was like, mommy, I'm so proud of you. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I wanted this whole time. You know, so I think just when you have your back against the wall like that, you don't have the luxury of doubting yourself because there's nowhere else for you to go. You have to just have all the balls in the world to just do things that you would normally doubt yourself about. You just have to go for it. And see if it works out. Because if you doubt yourself, you're already at the lowest point. (laughs) So just doubting yourself is just going to delay you rising. Can we quickly touch on you distinguishing yourself in the oversaturated market? So by, you know, a few years in, the big brands have started to catch on, like natural hair is a thing. And how were you positioning yourself to compete? That's a really excellent question. 
So one thing that I don't think enough companies do, especially starting out, is really figuring out their branding. A lot of times people think that branding is colors and fonts and the type of images that you take and that sort of thing. And it is, but there's more to it. There's a more psychological and psychographic thing to branding than a lot of times we give credit for. And so for me, it was a matter of figuring out who my customer was. So my customer is not the product junkie. She has no desire to be a product junkie. She's not the woman that's watching YouTube tutorials and trying to figure out hairstyles for this weekend. She does not have time for that. She is probably a mother. Generally, she's an entrepreneur herself or she has a very professional position. So she might be a high level executive in her company and she probably has at least one degree possibly two. And she's probably a wife also or a girlfriend or has some sort of like significant other. She's in a relationship. So she's got all these different people pulling at her. She's got her job, which is demanding. She's got her kid or kids. She's got her her significant other. She's got her family. She's got her friends because she wants to feel like she has a life, that sort of stuff. And so for me, finding out who that person was and what she's into, what TV shows does she watch? What does she eat for breakfast? What And it has nothing to do with whether she eats cereal or whether she eats eggs and toast and, or waffles. It's really about her habits. So finding out that my customer is generally an on-the-go person. So if, I, if you survey your customer base, your best customers, and you find out that your best customers, when I say best, I'm talking like your top 10, top 20% of customers who are routinely purchasing from you, over and over and over. These are your fans. These are your rabbit fans. They're your evangelists. They want you to succeed, so forth and so on. So you survey these people and I, I will find out the common thread amongst them. So what do they eat for breakfast? What do they watch on TV? What sort of magazines or media do they read? How do they spend their time? Do they work out? If they do work out, do they work out in groups or do they work out by themselves? Like all these psychographic things other than just demographics, right? So a lot of times as brands will say, well, my customer is 25 to 45. She's generally a female. She has a household income of 65,000 or better, right? But that could be me, right? Like as a person, but that could also be the woman who lives down the street who is nothing like me, right? We could both have a, a very similar income. We could both have a very similar lifestyle as far as children, husband, no husband, whatever, but we could be two totally different people. And for you to market to me, like you would market to her, you'd be wasting money, right? So for me, the way I would differentiate myself is that I would literally take a survey of those people who are my top 10 to 20% of customers. And I would find out those things that I mentioned. Like I could care less if they ate toast and jam and eggs and bacon, or if they ate cereal or they ate at Starbucks or McDonald's on the way to work. Like that doesn't matter to me. What matters is the habits that you find and the common thread amongst them. So if I find out that despite their demographics, the majority of my customers are eating cereal for breakfast or they are eating breakfast on the go. So they're going to McDonald's or they're going to Starbucks or whatever, and they're getting their food as opposed to having an actual meal where it's, you know, a well thought out, planned out meal, that kind of tells me that my customer is generally on the go. She doesn't have a whole lot of time to be making a fancy breakfast in the morning for everybody, right? So if I notice this, then I know that my customer is generally somebody who's time strapped. And if she's eating out all the time every morning for breakfast, she's probably not price sensitive either because that costs money, right? It's a lot cheaper to go to the grocery store and buy eggs and buy bacon and buy toast and all that stuff and make it in the morning than it is to be buying food every day on your way to work. 
but this is what my customer is doing because she's busy. She's got kids. She's got a husband to get ready in the morning. She's got to get herself ready. Depending on where she lives at in the country, she may have to take a train or some sort of public transportation to get there if she lives in New York or say San Francisco, that sort of thing. So that's what I would do is differentiate myself. I would literally call up my best customers and ask if I could interview them and ask them about 50 different questions about just their lifestyle. And I'm pretty sure they would be asking me like, why does she care about where I work out? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but for me, it was a bigger picture as to, you know, like, what can I find out about all of you that's very similar? And I found so many things that we have a very well thought out customer profile in our office. And when I say our now, there is, it is more than just me. <laughs> but it's a very well thought out plan. And I can say, we, we look to figure out who our muse was. And we'd say, what celebrity? Like, because I can identify with a certain celebrity. Like, I don't know Jane Jackson who lives down the street, right? So I can't really identify with her because I don't know anything about her. But I do know certain celebrities, right? Not personally, but I know them from like seeing them and I can understand them, relate to them. So what celebrity do I have that we can use as our muse that fits all of these criteria? And so we ended up choosing Shonda Rhimes as our muse because one, she is a boss, both literally and figuratively, as is our customer. She is a mother, as is our customer. She's a single mother to two kids. She, I imagine that she's always busy. I can't imagine her sitting around twiddling her thumbs, having nothing to do, right? (laughs) So I imagine that she's extremely busy, as is our customer. And so we can look at Shonda Rhimes and say, okay, would this product benefit Shonda Rhimes' life and would she buy it, right? I can't say that about Jane Jackson down the street because I don't know her right? But I can identify with Shonda. And so anytime that we are putting out a product, anytime we create some advertising, anytime we do anything, we always say, would Shonda be into this? That's the first question we ask. And if Shonda wouldn't be into it, it doesn't go out. That's something to copy y'all who are listening. You have to do that research, find out who your target customer is and ask yourself, would she like this? Would he like this? That's how you move forward. But you really have to do the research. You can't guess. <laughs> right. You can't guess. And, it, and it's so much easy. Like we have a, a big old smiling face of Shonda Rhimes on the wall. <laughs> and we does literally Shonda say, know this? Have you sent her I don't think she does, but we've like, we, I've talked about it several times. So if she ever runs across an interview, yes. she would hear it. But we're going to have to you send know, her this episode. <laughs> yes. But we have, it's a beautiful picture of Shonda Rhimes. And That's the first thing that I say. If you do that as a brand, you'll find it a lot easier to create appropriate marketing for your target customer. Another brand that does this fantastically well is Anthropology. So Anthropology, all their marketing is to one woman. They're only selling to one woman because if they can sell to that one woman, the women that are like her will buy it also because they're just like her, right? So for me, I'm like, I'm only trying to sell to Shonda. Right. Although Shonda may never have heard of Naturalicious, but that's my goal. I'm selling to Shonda Rhimes. I'm not selling to a target market. I'm not selling to people like Shonda. I'm selling to Shonda Rhimes because if she likes it, I know that she's the main customer, the target customer. Mm -hmm. People who are just like her, who are my target customer are going to buy it too. And I completely relate 100%. Like I, before starting this podcast, really honed in on who I wanted to serve. I mean, partially, yes, it was based on some of my own needs, but I got even deeper than that by researching and interviewing other women. And people will ask me, like, how did you, like, build up your podcast so fast or all this other stuff? And I'm like, I know exactly who I'm talking to. I created it for a specific person. Exactly. Well, kudos to you. 
Oh, thank you. And kudos <laughs> to you for being here and sharing your story. And speaking of sharing your story, like you created a whole other company, Pitch Proof, right? Perfect. You are a boss at this whole pitch competition <laughs> and getting money thing. Like talk to us a little bit about that. What inspired you to launch Pitch Proof? So my partner in Pitch Proof, his name is Brian Williams. We both started to see ourselves, like I would see him and he would see me <laughs> at all the pitch <laughs> competitions. And it was like, how come you and I are the only two that we routinely see at pitch competitions? So when you apply for a pitch competition, generally by the time you get to the finals where people sh are showing up in person, there's been several rounds that you have to get through. And I will always see him and he will always see me. And it's like, how come no one else is coming to these. And like, we imagine that it wasn't because they weren't trying. It was just that they weren't making it. Right. So what we started to notice is that when you are actually entering a pitch competition, there's generally about five or 10 people that are on the stage with you that you're pitching against, but really half of those people don't know how to pitch. So you're really only pitching. If there's 10 people, you're really only pitching against five because the other five have eliminated themselves because they don't know what they're doing. Right. And so we were like, we should teach people how to pitch. One, because pitch competitions are such a fantastic way to get equity and money for your business because it's very similar to a grant. You don't have to pay it back. Unlike an investment, you don't have some investor, you know, breathing down your back, asking you what you're doing with their money, expecting a return by a certain date. You do, it's kind of like an honor system. You win the pitch competition, they give you the money and you do what you need to do for your business. You're supposed to use it for your business. Some people use it to pay off bills, <laughs> but you know, well, whatever, well. <laughs> you know, do what you got to do, you know, but it's ways for you to fund this business without you having to take on a bank loan and deal with interest rates and all that stuff. And you also don't have to have an investor who takes money or equity out of your business. So it's a great way of getting, you know, what you need to fund because you can't run a business off of air. You know, you need cash flow. And sometimes you have opportunities that arise that you don't have the cash in the bank to to handle. Right. But if you don't take that opportunity, it's a great opportunity you're going to miss. So Brian and I decided that we were going to come together with our various skill sets. He has a, a great background in investment. So he actually used to be the person that did the due diligence for a large investment firm in Texas. So he has all of that knowledge. I have a very deep knowledge of pitch competition, winning, how to win, what to do when you don't win, how to leverage your loss, even if you don't win, how to leverage that and still end up winning in the end, all of that. And so it's a really great partnership that we have because there's really no one else in our space that are that's really holding people's hands and teaching them step by step what to do to win. So how long were you in business before becoming profitable? So Naturalicious has always been profitable. We've oh, never yes. not uh, been That's what we like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> We've always been profitable. Even when I had $32 in the bank, it was going to the fairs and all that stuff mm -hmm. and the farmer's market and all that. And it's because I never purchased anything on credit. One, I always use cash because the last thing that I needed as a newly single mother with only $32 the day I got laid off was to have debt to deal with or more debt than I already had to deal with, you know? And so if I couldn't afford it in cash or if I didn't have the money in the bank, it didn't get purchased. So that made me have to hustle and grind harder 
to be able to afford the equipment that I needed or the raw materials that I needed. Or if I needed to buy something in bulk to lower my cost, I had to hustle and grind to get that money so that I could pay for it with the money in the bank. Also, I, I never, I haven't taken on any investment. I have been offered investment by people, but I've declined them all. And it's kept me profitable, but not, but more so than being profitable, it's also kept me sane because I see a lot of these companies that, I mean, they're doing insane, $10 million in sales in like half in the, the first quarter of the year or whatever, you know, they're $20 million companies. And they're not profitable. And I'm like, how, Sway? Like, (laughs) how are you not profitable? What is going on? How are you making all this money? What do you have excess of? Because to me, if you are making that much money, you should be able to take home a paycheck. Like, how stressful is it to have all this income coming in and you can't even take home a paycheck, you know? So that's, that was my one thing. Like, not only do I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't want to create a job for myself, right? That's what a lot of times we do. So we go into business for ourselves and we end up creating a job, right. which We're is the worst kind of- to sundown, like- Yes. And it's the worst kind of job to have because you don't get sick days. There's no PTO. You don't get benefits. You know, it's like being a, having a self-created job is the worst. So yeah. I want to be happy with what I'm doing. I don't want to despise or resent my business. And so, again, to answer your question, we've always been profitable. And I would encourage people to let the business tell you when to grow. Like, it'll tell you when you no longer can fulfill your own orders. Ooh, that is a quotable. (laughs) Let the business tell you when to grow. (laughs) (laughs) Tweet that out and make sure you quote me. But, (laughs) but, (laughs) But yes, it's like, let the business tell you when to grow because, like I realized I could no longer fulfill my own orders when we were getting orders faster than I could fulfill them with the, with my, within my lifestyle. Right. So like my son is in school now. He, um, he's in kindergarten, which means he gets out of school earlier than he did when he was in daycare. Right. So my day is shorter. Also, he goes to school later. Daycare started at like seven in the morning. School doesn't start, kindergarten doesn't start till nine. So two hours of my day are gone in the morning and then two hours of my day are gone in the afternoon. So I can no longer spend all day long fulfilling orders, right? So I know now, hey, I got to get somebody to fulfill these orders because also I travel a lot for my business. So if I'm traveling all around, you know, drumming up new accounts and networking and doing what I have to do for the business, guess what? Those orders aren't going out and people are going to be unhappy because their orders are going to take a whole week to get done because they got to wait till I get back which means I need to hire somebody to handle my orders. So at that point, you realize, okay, the business has grown and is telling me that I need to hire someone to handle this part of the business for them. Same thing with any aspect of the business. Don't get so overzealous or so excited about having your own business that you end up going into the hole and you end up not being profitable. It it doesn't have to be that way. You know, one of the things that really stood out to me and your business and how you're growing it is the really awesome influencer partnership you did for your Coco Shea Butter line. <laughs> like, yeah. how did that idea come about? So um, so we partnered with Derek Jackson, who is an influencer, as you mentioned, on Facebook and on Instagram. He has a, a large, extremely large following, about a million followers on Facebook, and it was very funny. I I mean, I see him all the time. I think a lot of people who are listening have probably seen him if they don't recognize the name. They've definitely seen his videos pop up in their newsfeed on Facebook. 
And I happened to, the the young lady who handles our uh, Instagram page, she does all the postings and responses and that kind of thing. She had posted a picture of him and made some sort of comments about him. And so my friend said to me, oh, I see you got my boy on your Facebook page today. And I'm like, who? <laughs> you know, I'm like, what are you talking about? So I go and I, I was like, oh, you're talking about Derek Jackson. Yeah, yeah, I think he's great. He's like, yeah, I went to college with him. I was like, really? So he's like, yeah. I was like, you know, I actually thought about reaching out to him to kind of do a collaboration, but I don't know him like that. And he said, well, I'll give you his number. And I was like, okay. And so Derek and I got acquainted that way through our mutual friend. And he was just like, you know what? I really love what you're doing. I think you're great. I think it's dope that, you know, you're the first black woman to have a patent on a natural hair product. And I was like, I think what you tell women about loving yourself and, you know, being self, having self-love and self-care, I think that's dope. And we were like, let's do something together. And that it was very organic. It was just like that. It's not like I sent him a pitch letter or anything. <laughs> and so we kind of came together just kind of vibing on trying to figure out what we could do that would benefit our community and also be great for the two of us mutually. And so I was like, well, you know, I really would love to do a body care line with you. I think that it would be great. I think your fans would love it. I think my fans would love it. And he's like, let's, let's do it. And so I went into the lab, formulated up the body butter, sent him a sample of it. He loved it from the, out the gate. And we put it out as a test to see how it would do. And we put it on pre-sale and within three weeks we had sold a thousand jars. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So it's been a good partnership. You know, again, I try to think of things to do that my competitors aren't doing. Right. So I always like to say fish where the fishermen aren't. Right. So that way you can be a big fish in a small pond as opposed to trying to be a small fish in a big pond. My industry is extremely saturated, as you know. And the thing is that this industry is not extremely creative, to be honest. Everybody does whatever. It's a. It's kind of like me too. Everybody does what everybody else does. And so this is a fine strategy. There's nothing wrong with this, but it's what everyone else does. So they find someone on, Inst on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube. They send them a product. The person uses the product. They say they love it. And then it's like onto the next product. And that was a great strategy five years ago. Because back then, influencers were not necessarily being paid for what they do. They were being, they, they would just, they just want to share, right? And there's nothing wrong with getting paid for what you do. Please don't miss, anyone listening, please don't misunderstand. It's fine that they get paid. I think they should get paid. But what is done is kind of, consumers have started to, they know that people are being paid, right? right so right. you can't possibly love every leave-in conditioner that you try. Exactly. Right? I have so, unfollowed people because of that because I don't know if I can trust them anymore. Exactly. And the thing was, it was so, it was trustworthy in the beginning. So the, the companies that were smart enough to kind of jump on that idea in the beginning, I think that they were able to get a lot of traction out of it. But nowadays it's not the best strategy to have as your sole strategy, because again, most people are, understand that so-and-so is getting paid for it, even if they don't say that they're getting paid for it. And no company is going to pay you to say that they, that you don't like their stuff. Right. Right. So again, it's, it's kind of diff, it's more difficult for the consumer to determine who's really loving something and who doesn't love something. And so what I try to do again is to fish where the fishermen aren't. So what are my competitors not doing? And that's a harder thing to come up with. It's so much easier to just do what everyone else is doing because it's kind of already been proven. 
But if everyone else is doing it, it's going to get diluted after so long. So the thing with Derek, that's not something that has been done before. We have another campaign that we're going to come out with completely separate from from Mr. Jackson soon. And it's not something that's been done before. And I'm really excited about it. And it's just, um, I don't know. It's just, I, I, I don't want to be a Me Too brand. I think also I try to make sure that our marketing budget is enough where we can do what we need to do, but it's not so much that we use the money as a crutch for creativity, Mm. Mm. right? And so that happens a lot with when you have unlimited budgets. You're just like, oh, well, here, and it happened with us at Ford. I mean, we would sometimes just put money to a certain thing because we could, we had the money in the budget. When you don't have the money in the budget, it forces you to be creative and keeps you from just being that mundane, monotonous, having that sort of branding and marketing, so... Be wise, especially when you're starting out. I hear that message. Um, Before we get into the bonus round, just want to know what's next for Gwen and how are you continuing to grow your various brands? So a few things are are coming up. So like I said, we have this new campaign that we're going to be launching very soon. And I wish I could talk about it. I so wish I could talk about it. It's so (laughs) exciting and so interesting and new and different and fresh. So maybe maybe I can come back on like another time once we've launched it and we can talk about it. But um, okay. that's happening. Ideally, we'll actually start filming that probably in July. So that's that's kind of like where my focus is right now. Other than that, just finding interesting ways to market the business, utilizing technology smartly. So retargeting advertisements for customers. I hope that the listening audience is privy to retargeting. And if not, please look it up. You can retarget on Facebook. You can retarget through Google. And it's kind of like a working smarter, not harder sort of thing for marketing your business. Also, for me personally, my brand, I do a lot of speaking engagements. And so I'm actually going to be upping the ante with that. I kind of take them here and there, but I'm, I'm going to be more intentional about my speaking engagements. I really love if you can't tell, talking. And, <laughs> and so I love talking about business. I love talking about entrepreneurship and particularly to small businesses who are kind of starting out who I feel like I can help them avoid certain mistakes because I've made those mistakes perhaps. So I like that. So I, I'm going to be upping the ante with my speaking engagements. Also, we're working on a conference, a business conference for successful single mothers. And um, that will be hopefully happening next year in August is the target date. The Successful Single Mom Summit is the name of it. And so it'll be a conference for or summit, if you will, for for women who are um, successful in their businesses, but also those who aspire to be successful, who may not feel like they're quite there yet, but they aspire to be. And the reason that I came up with this was because I'm a single mother, you know, and when I think of single or when anyone thinks of single mothers, I think you automatically think what the media shows you, which is the downtrodden woman, you know, she doesn't have a man and she's so sad, you know, with her life and things are horrible. And it's like, I don't know anybody like that. And there are people who are like that, but there are a lot of successful single mothers who are out here kicking butt and doing it. And I think that if you can see it, you realize that you can be it. And so I want to create a, a conference for us that helps those of us who are doing well to connect, but also those people who feel like they they want to be, but they're not quite there yet, allow them to actually see some of these 
amazing, incredible women who have been in their shoes and have made something out of nothing on their own. And so it's not a place for, you know, bashing your ex-husband. You know, it's none of that, you know, it's none of that. It's all business. It's all because we have different needs. To be quite honest, there's a difference in being a single mother to a, in my case, a single mother to a six-year-old boy who is in like eight different activities and you have no family here and it's all me, right? Versus if I were married or if I were in a relationship where I was like maybe cohabitating or whatever, where I could share that split of time, right? So everything that happens is on me. If I don't kill it, we don't eat it. You know what I mean? So it's it's a different sort of um, dynamic that single mothers have as business owners. And, and so it's already hard enough having a business because that's like your child, but having a child along with it is even more challenging. And so it's just really a conference for us to share that dynamic with each other and walk away from it, feeling inspired and just knowing that we can be awesome women. Really, it's what it is. So that's coming up next August. Is there a website for people to stay tuned or should they just stay tuned on your website? You should probably just stay tuned to my website. The website is not up or ready yet. The URL has been secured, so don't nobody out there go try to take my URL because I already bought it. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but other than that, um, the website is not up yet. So, but yes, just awesome. stay tuned to probably my Instagram page. It's probably where I, I make most of those announcements. So my Instagram page is is just Gwen Jameer, which is G W E N J I M M E R E. Okay, so now we're going to jump right into the bonus round. You know the deal. You just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. So number one, what's a resource that has helped you in your business that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? Mm. Ah, Black Enterprise. Black Enterprise Entrepreneurs Conference. Number two, what's been the best business book or podcast episode that you've consumed this year? This year, I'm going to say Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, who is the founder of Nike. Oh, yes. Number three, who inspires you and why? Sarah Blakely inspires me because she is, as I mentioned earlier, she's the first, I'm sorry, the youngest self-made female billionaire in America. We have very similar backstories. She was also not single mother, but she was also like young and had this wacky idea to make, turn some compression stockings into something that made her waist look smaller. <laughs> and um, she just kind of went for it. She didn't have any connections. She ended up in Neiman Marcus, got on Oprah, and now she's a billionaire. And she also has never taken any investment. She owns 100% of her company. She also filed her patent on as I did. So I feel like we're like sisters. We should know each other. And we should hang out all the time, but she doesn't know who in the world I am yet. So... <laughs> Her and Shonda, after this episode, yes. we'll send it to them. Yes. <laughs> Number four, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your business? That's a great question. I'm going to say I, I made it a habit to not take my computer, my laptop into my bedroom at night. And so the reason that that helps me is because it keeps my balance together. Because if I have my laptop in my bedroom, I'm going to be working, even though I may take it up there with the thought of, oh, I'm going to watch Hulu, somehow I'm going to end up working and I'm going to be working all through the night and it kind of messes up my work-life balance. So for me, the habit is intentionally, like the computer does not belong in the in the bedroom. It stays 
downstairs where I would do work. And it helps me to be more productive because I know that I can't just take it upstairs at night. So I got to get everything done during the day. So when I'm upstairs, I can actually be relaxing. Number five, what's your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, but are worried about losing that steady paycheck? Oh, I love this question. So my advice is to remember that waiting is not a wealth strategy. And what I mean by that is waiting around because you feel that you need to have that steady paycheck. All it does is delay your prosperity and it also serves as a crutch for you. Now, on the other hand, it's important for you to assess your risk tolerance. People like me are a little bit more risk takers, but if you are uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable with taking that risk, I would just want to remind you that again, waiting is not a wealth strategy. So even if you are um, trying to make sure you keep that steady paycheck coming for a little while, at least start working your business. Like you're going to have to take it from being a side hustle to being a second full-time job if you want it to to really thrive and really grow so that you can have enough revenue from that business so that you can quit that daytime job, which you really don't want. So don't delay, don't wait. We're always waiting around for the right opportunity. We're always waiting for our kids to graduate from high school, or we're waiting until we find a better job, or we're waiting until this happens, or we're waiting until that happens. And we always think that once that thing happens, everything's going to fall into place, but rarely does that happen. Rarely do the stars align in such a way where everything just works out. So you're always going to be waiting. And so just remember that it's not a wealth strategy. So please do not delay, get a move on, make some moves, make some strides so that you can't eventually quit that job. Now, before we go, you are the first African-American woman to hold a patent for a natural hair care product. Yes. Tell us about that. What made you pursue patenting? And then was it difficult? So my mother made me do it. Okay. <laughs> to be honest, I actually did not think that it was possible to get a patent on a hair product. But she just was very insistent. And she would just say, Gwen, you know really got to try and patent this because you're going to be looking up one day and one of these big brands are going to be having a commercial about your product and you're going to be sitting at home mad because you didn't protect yourself. And I was like, mommy, you know, you can't patent a hair product. What are you talking about? She's like, you should just try. And I was like, you know how expensive it is to patent a hair care, to patent anything? I don't have that kind of money. Again, I'm like, this is like like a year after I've lost my job. So I still, I'm still not balling, you know? So she, um, she's like, well, you should just try. And my mother, the reason that was so significant for me was because my mother is not the type of mother to, um, tell me something is good just because I'm her daughter, right? She will completely keep it real with me. Um, there's been times where I've done things that I thought were good ideas and she'd be like, "Mm -mm, baby, you need to go back to the drawing board with that one, you know? (laughs) But she loved my products. She is probably a worse critic in a very loving way than I am of myself, right? She doesn't, I mean, she's not trying to be hard. She's just being honest. And so she loved, loved, loved my Moroccan Rustle 5-in-1 clay treatment, which is the product that has the patent on it. And she was just very insistent. And so I eventually was like, let me just find out some information about this stuff so I can just make her be quiet because I'm so tired of hearing about this patent. And so I started to look it up and I found out that it would cost me 
it could cost me anywhere from $10,000 to $20,000 or more to get a patent with a patent attorney. And I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford that. So then I decided that I was going to do like I just like I did with my hair products. I couldn't figure out how to how to make how to find the hair products I was looking for. So I decided to make them. And so with the patent, I was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to find the money to do that. So I'm going to do it myself. And luckily here in Detroit, we have one of the few U.S. patent and trademark satellite offices in the country. We actually had the first one that they built. And I would go down to that office and I would spend all day there and I would research. Now, they can't tell you how to file a patent, but they can lead you in the right direction. So I would spend a lot of time there. Then um, in my local library where I live, I would go there and they actually have a a intellectual property section of the library. And so I became very good friends with the librarians and I would, I literally taught myself patent law. It was almost like I was going back to college for intellectual property. And um, I just viewed it as I was going to college. So my son was in daycare at that point for two days a week instead of his usual five, because I was divorced now. And those two days a week, I would go to the library and I would be there from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And that was my quote unquote class. And I would learn everything I could about patent law, the history of patent law, what had changed with patent law once Obama got into office, what was on the table or on the books to possibly change once he left office, like everything I could find out about patent law. And that from that point on, about eight months into that, I then filed for the patent. And it took me another, I'm sorry, about six months into that, it took me another eight months to actually get the patent. So all in all, it took me over a year to receive the patent um, from start to finish from me, you know, idea, idealizing this thing to actually receiving it. That is amazing. And you guys, if it's not already clear, like Gwen is a boss that you need to consult, whether it's about pitching and having the confidence to go out there and get those pitch competitions going or thinking through like, how can you really do stuff on your own? This is the reason why I wanted her in the guest chair. So Gwen, I know people are going to have questions for you. So what's the best way that we can connect with you after this episode? Sure. So the best way to reach me is Gwen at, so it's Gwen, G-W-E-N at naturalicious.net. And naturalicious is spelled N A T U R A L I C I O U S dot net. So Gwen at naturalicious.net is the best way to reach me. Thank you for that, guys. You got the email. I'll also put it in the show notes. So there's no way you can misspell it. And Gwen, thank you so much for being in the guest chair. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. All right, guys. And there you have it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you want to hear more from me, head on over to sidehustlepro.co forward slash side hustle corner to get my weekly side hustle diaries chronicles about my own journey from passion project to profitable business. And if you want to find me online, I'm at Side Hustle Pro on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to join the Side Hustle Pro Facebook community. Go to sidehustlepro.co forward slash mastermind. And as always, if you love the show, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week.